Hey, good morning, y'all. I just want to say today is Pentecost. Everybody knows what Pentecost is, right? Today we're celebrating Pentecost. That's why I'm wearing this very red shirt. Is it red enough? It's red enough. Okay, Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Some people differ on that. Some people say, oh, well, no, the church was born when Jesus was born. But that that was actually like the very beginning of it. And then some people say, no, it was at the resurrection. That was the birthday of the church. But in my way of thinking, that was just lighting the fuse. That was lighting the fuse. Pentecost is the explosion. Okay, Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Jesus said, he said, I'm going to, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in all of Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's Pentecost and that's the birthday of the church and that's why we're here today. It was the explosion that literally went off and changed the world forever. So we're not there in Luke right now, but guess what? Guess who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, second chapter of Acts. So he recorded the events of Pentecost. Over 3,000 souls came to believe that day and were baptized. And that was just the beginning, right? Just the beginning. Christianity is all over the world today. Another thing before I get started on my message today that I would like to acknowledge is this is Memorial Day weekend, and uh, the difference between veterans, they say some, uh, all gave some, right, and some gave all. And that's the difference between Veterans Day, a lot of people know that Veterans Day and Memorial Day is Veterans Day, we remember all veterans and everyone who has served, but on Memorial Day, we remember the families, like the Gold Star families, those who have lost their lives in the defense of freedom and our way of life, from the Revolutionary War, all the way through the Civil War, and all the way to today. So what I would like for us to do today is I just want us to remember, to remember them. It's not just a day to have hamburgers. It's a day to remember with gratitude, with gratitude, those who literally ran to the fight. They ran into harm's way for our nation. So what I'd like for us to do right now is I'd like for us to just pause for a moment of silent meditation to remember those who gave their lives for our freedom and also the families and those connected. So would you just bow in silence for just a moment? Lord, this morning we just give thanks for those who have given the ultimate sacrifice and gave themselves for others. Lord, you said greater love has no one than this, than the one lay down his life for his friends. And that's what we're remembering today after your example, Lord Jesus. They laid down their lives for our freedoms. We pray for their families uh, and we pray um, in remembrance of them. And uh, we give thanks. We give thanks for their sacrifice and for their gift to us. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, welcome back to our series on the Gospel of Luke. Um, Today is chapter 14, which was quite a challenge for me, I must admit. There's There's some very interesting things in there that actually require a lot of explanation for us to really understand what Jesus is saying. But last week, just in brief review, was chapter 13 of Luke. And Luke starts off with Jesus teaching the importance of repentance 
In the church nowadays, we don't talk a whole lot about repentance, but it's very important. He used two rather tragic examples to make his point, but the point was this. His repentance is important. If we don't repent, turn around from the way we think and going this way and turn to God, if we don't do that for his mercy and his grace, we will perish. We will perish. And he doesn't want that. So, so that's pretty important. And then Jesus, from that, Jesus flows right into a parable and a lesson about the patience and the forbearance of God because he doesn't want us to perish. Remember, I read from 2 Peter, it's not his will that any should perish. So he's being patient. He wants to give us more time to turn to him in faith. If you remember the parable from last week, he said, cut down the fig tree. The guy says, no, 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 let's give it another year. Let's give him more time. That's what, he's, that's what that is about. God is patient with us. After that, Jesus heals a woman on the Sabbath, then explains why he should and did heal her on the Sabbath. It was the perfect time. He explained to those who were all wrapped up in their own hypocritical, legalistic fervor, which is equal to blindness, spiritual blindness. He explained it to them. Next, we saw two of the shortest parables in the Bible, two verses each. The parable of the mustard seed and tree and the parable of the leaven. The intention of the parables was to give us a better understanding of what the kingdom of God is like. That's what Jesus says. What is the kingdom of God like? What can I compare it to? And in both of those parables, something very small seemingly and seemingly insignificant became something big and very significant, like the mustard tree, Right? And something that was very tiny was transformed into a huge blessing for many, for us. It was a place of refuge, refuge and provision. The kingdom of God is like that. And Jesus is teaching us that in those parables. After those two parables, Jesus teaches a third parable on the narrow way, the narrow gate, or the narrow door. In verse 24 of 13, he said, strive. Strive to enter by the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So basically, not everybody's going to make it. Again, that is about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And if you remember, uh, in the parable, the head of the house, he said, go away. He said, I don't know where you're from. I've closed the door and you can't come in. What's he saying? He's saying, it's too late. You had time. It's too late. That's the message of it. Um, you may have heard this saying before. When it comes to getting ahead in life, it's not necessarily what you know, but who? Yeah, but who you know. And that is certainly the case here. It's the case for us. He said, I don't know you. You see, we need to know, it's very important, we need to know the one who is the narrow way. And that is Jesus Christ. He's the way and the truth and the life. We need to know him, not just about him, not just, oh, yeah, there was a Jesus. And yeah, No, we need to know who he is and what he's done for us. We need to know him and receive him as our Lord and our Savior. We need to know him, not just know about him. Faith in him is what opens the door of repentance, redemption, and reconciliation to God, which in a word is salvation. That's salvation. Repentance redemption and reconciliation in our relationship with God. Chapter 13 ends with Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he foreshadows his triumphal entry into the uh, city of Jerusalem. He says this, he says, Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, today, that was chapter 13. Today is chapter 14. 
which begins with another instance, another one, we've seen like three or four, another instance of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, just like we saw last week, but it was in, it was in the synagogue, remember? It was in the synagogue. But today, it's in somebody's house. It's in the house of a Pharisee. He's actually the leader, a leader of the Pharisees. That's what the text tells us, and it also tells us that the Pharisees were watching Jesus very closely, because he's a wild guy, right? He breaks laws and stuff like that. So they're watching him closely. They're watching him closely. He is there in the house eating some bread. He was invited on the Sabbath by some of the Pharisees. And Jesus, while he's there, he notices someone with dropsy. What's dropsy? Have you ever wondered? Yeah. (laughs) Joan. I don't know. That's right. And that was me too. I had never looked it up, but I actually looked it up now. There was someone there with dropsy. What dropsy is, is it's a medical condition from a swelling of fluid retention in the extremities, mainly like the legs. Today it's called edema. Edema. Uh, It can be caused by several things, insufficient and incompetent veins in your legs, kidney problems, or heart failure, or other things. But it's not good, right? It's not good. Dropsy is not good. So Jesus notices this man, and he asks the lawyers and the Pharisees, straightforward question. He says, is it legal to heal someone on the Sabbath or not? Straightforward, right? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And what do they do? Nothing. Crickets. Crickets. They say nothing. The scripture literally says they kept silent. Okay? But listen to what Jesus does and says in Luke chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, as I read it for you. Please follow along with me. It said, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely, always watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy, edema, right? Heart failure. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And they, and they kept silent and he took hold of him, the man, and he healed him and then sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. I, I wouldn't know what to say either. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you that your, um, your wisdom is undeniable. And God, we thank you for the truth that you reveal to us in the scripture. And all of these parables are so important about the kingdom of God and about healing on the Sabbath and about you being the Lord of the Sabbath. So Lord, let the words of our mouths today and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. Let these words of scripture, the teachings of Jesus, fall upon our ears in such a way that we are enlightened, that we are transformed and changed and more knowledgeable of what it means to trust in you and follow you. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear today what you are saying to us through these teachings. We pray in your name, Jesus, and all God's people said. So Jesus gives them undeniable logic, common sense, right? He says, if your child or an ox falls into a well, you're going in after them, right? Or you're calling 911. You're not going to let them drown because it's the Sabbath day. That's what he says. You're not going to let it happen. Well, this guy that Jesus heals is probably dying from heart failure. That's what dropsy is, retention, liquid retention. So Jesus rescues him from drowning in his own fluids, which can happen, which can happen. You can die from it. But the Pharisees kept silent. 
It's unusual, actually. Why would they keep silent? Well, I think Luke wants us to know, here at this point, in the rejection of Jesus, the Pharisees are starting to get it a little bit. They're starting to understand. Jesus, okay, has got it going on, right? Jesus has got it going on. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He doesn't just speak about things that he's heard from other rabbis in other places and in the Mishnah. He speaks as one having authority, like he decides, because he does. Jesus is not just another rabbi in this long line of the rabbinic tradition, which there was rabbi after rabbi after rabbi. There are records of all these rabbis. No, he's special, right? Jesus is special. He's different. Luke wants us to know that, that Luke wants us to know that Jesus says things that only God can do. And that's important. So pay attention. There's something special about this man, Jesus. He's not just one in a million. He's one in forever. Okay? There's never been anyone like Jesus before, and there will never be anyone like Jesus again. He's one in forever. He's the one, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. Pay attention. Pay attention. They're starting to get it. In the next six verses, Jesus teaches us about choosing a posture of humility rather than arrogance. He doesn't like arrogance. And he uses the setting in a parable, a setting in a wedding, a parable of a wedding. And before he goes into it, it says this in verse 7. It says, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guest. To where? In the Pharisee's house. He's, he's sitting there. And he began speaking a parable to them when he noticed how they had been picking out places of honor at the table. So they're trying to sit close to the big guy, the head Pharisee, right? They're, they're looking for the places of honor. And then he goes into this parable about that uh, using a wedding. And it reminded me of a wedding that I did, actually. Um, I did this wedding, I did the celebration, and, and I was gonna, it was a Saturday, and so I needed to get ready for church, and so I was going to go, and the family said, oh, Pastor John, please stay, we've, we've already paid for your dinner, please at least stay for dinner and, and say the prayer at the reception. So, okay, okay, I'll do that. And so they say, just go sit right up there, just go sit right up there. And so after the wedding, I go up there, and I'm sitting there, and then people just start coming in, I mean, it's starting filling up quick, but it was kind of weird, because I'm the only one sitting at this table. I think, well, that's weird. You know, everybody's sitting everywhere else. And so then all of a sudden, this group of about eight people, they walk in, okay, and, and they look at me, and they, you know, and they look at each other, and they, oh, oh, yeah. and so I'm wondering what's going on. And so the lady, she was very nice, but she walked up to me, and she said, she said, I'm sorry, I hope you don't mind, but you're sitting at our table. And so we've got eight people, and we need all the chairs. Would you terribly mind moving? And I said, but of course, but of course, Right? So I get up and I move, but guess what? All the other places are taken. So I go back in the back, and there's not even a, a table setting, but I, I sit back there, and I, I did. I stayed, and I ate. Um, I kid you not, this is almost exactly the scenario of this parable, which is why it reminded, except I sat in the place of honor by accident because somebody told me to. That's the only difference. So listen to verses 7 through 9. And Jesus, he began speaking um, a parable to the invited guests, and he noticed how they were, had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, and here he goes, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by you, which is what happened to me, right? Right? And he who invited you both will come to you and say, give your place to this man. 
and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place, which is exactly what I did in the very back of the room, okay? Uh, it was crazy how similar it was. So Jesus' point here, okay, is don't seek the place of honor. Don't assume you're the most important person. Don't seek to exalt yourself because you might get told, like I did, right? You might get told. You come up, oh, no, that's not your seat. That chair is actually for someone special. <laughs> See ya, right? That's what's going on. You need to move to third class. You're sitting in first class, but you got to go to third class, okay? And so I get up. They had no idea who they were talking to. I'm kind of a big deal. Anyway, in the remainder of this parable, Jesus reverses that whole equation, okay? He reverses that whole equation and delivers the punchline. This master teacher in classic didactic style says this. This is what you don't want to do. And this is why you don't want to do it. And then he follows up that teaching with, this is what you do want to do. And this is why you should do it. And then Jesus delivers the punchline, which is the point of the parable. And here it is. This is the point of the parable. It's verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Listen to both verses together, verse 10 and 11. Jesus is going on with the parable, okay? He says, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That reminds me also of chapter uh, 13 from last week, verse 30, where Jesus says this about the kingdom of God, and that's what he's talking about in this parable as well. Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So don't assume you're first. Also, the parable rings true with the apostle Paul. Chapter 12, verse 3 says this, for through the grace given to me, Paul says, I say to everyone among you, do not think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. In this parable, Jesus is teaching us to err on the side of humility. To err on the side of humility. Consider others as important as yourself, if not more so, which is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Conceit is arrogance, okay? Nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. So there it is. Humility. Whoom, there it is. Whoom, there it is. Humility. Err on the side of humility. In the next four verses, verses 12 through 15, we have the parable of the luncheon, which is about doing something gracious and good for others in order to get something in return. That's what this parable is about, as a reward. The lesson is basically this. Don't give in order to get something in return. In fact, go out of your way. What he says is to go out of your way to do things for people that can't pay you back. They can't repay you. They're not able. If you do that, he says, that's kingdom giving. Do, 
do gracious things for people that will never be able to pay you back. Don't seek reward or recognition, but instead seek God's pleasure. Do it to please God. Let that be your motivation. It reminds me of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew um, 5, 6, and 7. In Matthew 6, Jesus addresses three kinds of religious piety, three displays or expressions of religious piety. There's giving, right? We do that. There's giving, there's praying, we do that, and there's fasting. We don't do that as much as we used to, but... And the point of the teaching is this. Don't give, pray, or fast with the goal of being seen so that you will receive some kind of recognition like a pat on the back or, hey, aren't you amazing? You're so religious. Aren't you something? He says instead, listen, instead give, pray, and fast in such a way that nobody notices. Do it in a way that nobody notices so you can be sure that your motives are purely to please who? God and not to please people. With giving, Jesus said something quite amazing. It's called hyperbole, which I'm going to get to here in a minute because we've got some hyperbole in chapter 14. It's a teaching technique. Jesus says, let not your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's hyperbole. In other words, he's saying, go out of your way to be secretive and sneaky in your giving so that no one notices except God. God, and he will reward you. This parable is about that. It's about giving to and doing for people who can never pay you back. And when you do that, God will reward you. That's what this parable is about. So listen to verses 12 through 14 with that setting. Listen. And he also went on to say to one, of, to one who had invited him, so the head Pharisee, he says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do you invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors? Otherwise, don't. He says, don't invite them. I'm sorry. Do not invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your reward. That will be your reward. But when you give a reception, he says, invite the poor. Invite the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have any means to repay you. For you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. In other words, God will reward you at the end of all things. So it's simple, isn't it? Simple, powerful, and clear. Everybody gets it, right? You get it? Simple. Jesus is amazing. Next is a parable about the big dinner. It's also called the parable of the banquet. Same thing. This parable is about indifference. It's about the indifference of people toward God and toward the kingdom of God. They have no interest, seemingly no need or desire to know who God is and what he's done for them. So here's the problem. They miss it all together, these people. They miss it all together. They just miss out. They miss out on God's gracious gift of forgiveness and salvation that he offers us in Jesus Christ. They, they just miss it. They miss it. Listen to verses 15 through 21. When one of those who were reclining at the table, again, he's at the Pharisee's house, with him, heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, Jesus said to the person, he said, A man was giving a big dinner. And he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave out to say to those who had been invited, Come, 
for everything is ready now. Dinner's ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, it says, I have bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Now there's a rain check, right? Another one says, I have bought five yoke of oxen. So these are obviously people with means. I bought five yoke of oxen and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Rain check. Another one said, I have married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to the master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and the lanes, like the alleyways, right, of the city and bring here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Bring them here. Okay, so they are just too busy doing life to be bothered with the things of God to be bothered with this talk of the kingdom of God. They're going here, they're going there, they're doing this, they're doing that, they're buying this, they're buying that, they're trying this, they're trying that, right? Distracted, indifferent, and unconcerned. That's those folks. That's who he's talking about. Yet here is what they don't understand. Here is what they don't understand. They're missing it. Because they're not paying attention. They're missing the most important part of life and living, which is a relationship with our Creator made possible by Jesus. They're missing it. And listen, that's a party you don't want to miss. You hear me? That's a party you don't want to miss because the alternative is separation from God. No reconciliation, no forgiveness, no redemption. And here's the conclusion, verses 22 through 24. 22 through 24. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done. In other words, he did it. He went out into the streets and the lanes and the alleys. He invited them all. What you commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to him, Slave, go out into the highways and along the hedges, the highways and the byways, right? And compel them to come in so that my house may be full. Jesus wants us. Do you hear it? He's saying there, I want you in the kingdom. I want you with me. He wants us in the kingdom of God. Then verse 24, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. What's he saying? They missed it. They missed it. It's too late. They just missed out on the most important thing in life. Jesus' message to us, what is it? Don't make the same mistake. That's his message. Don't make the same mistake and help other people to not make the same mistake, which is what I'm doing right now. And to people listening online, don't make the same mistake. Turn to God. Repent because he has grace and mercy for you. The last 10 verses of chapter 14 come across as very harsh, and that's because they are. (laughs) It's very harsh. But, again, it's not quite as harsh as they seem at face value because Jesus is speaking in hyperbole. Remember I talked about hyperbole? Hyperbole is a teaching technique and a tool. It's speaking above what you are saying. It's exaggerating to make a point. Okay, That's what hyperbole is teaching uh, method is 
And here's a, a, a quick example of hyperbole, is when Cecil is carrying Vicky's suitcase and he says, man, your suitcase weighs a ton, right? Oh, it does, but it doesn't weigh a ton. What do you mean? It's just really heavy, right? This suitcase is not, a, Vicky doesn't have that much stuff, right? But it's really heavy. That's hyperbole, making a point, okay? It's not a ton. Another good example of that is something that I just quoted from the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when it came to giving, okay? Do you know you can't do that? You can't do that. My hands always know where the other hand is, right? I, I did a sermon on that one time, and it's my favorite sermon title I've ever given. Yeah, it, it, this is the title. It's such a cool title. Schizophrenic Ambidextria. <laughs> schizophrenic Ambidextria. Because in order for you to give with this hand and this hand not know about it, you'd have to be schizophrenic and ambidextrous all at the same time, right? But you can't do it. It's not possible. It's hyperbole. You see, Jesus is using hyperbole to make a point. Be as secretive as you can possibly be. Come as close to that as you can, Right? Hyperbole. So keeping that in mind, I want you to listen to, verse, to um, verses 25 through 27 as I read. 25 through 27. Now large crowds were going along with him. So I guess he'd left the house of the Pharisee. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, just get pretty serious, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. In other words, there's got to be this huge contrast, right? Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? That's rough. That's rough. Okay? And, and it, this has been a stumbling point for a lot of people. When they come to that scripture, they say, oh, this Christian stuff's crazy. Jesus wants me to hate my family. I can't hate my family. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. He's saying by comparison, right? By comparison, you need to love me more. See, see they say, I can't hate my family. It's a teaching tool. He's making a dramatic point going over the top to make his point. Like, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's extreme to make a point because it's important. It's important because this is what Jesus is saying when he says that. I need to be first in your life. I need to be ahead of all those other people in your mind. You need to love me more than you love them, right? That's what he's saying. I need to be first in your life, not second, third, or fourth. Not a side gig, not an afterthought, not something that you just do on Sunday. I need to be first. I need to be at the center of your life, ahead of everyone else. That's what he's saying. And that's why he used that harsh hyperbole to say that. Jesus is either first in our lives or he's not. He's something else. Second, third, fourth. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. He's not. And that's his point. And it's important, when we say that we're Christians, when we say that we're followers of Christ, he needs to be first. Somebody say amen. amen. He needs to be first. The rest of chapter 14, verses 28 through 35, takes that point and amplifies it further, if you can imagine amplifying that. He just said, if you're going to be, if, 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 
He just says, if you are going to be my disciple, I need to be number one in your life. I need to be central in your life. In the next seven verses, he tells us to count the cost of that. Count the cost of discipleship, being his disciple. Now, let me make this clear. Salvation is free. It's a free gift. It's a free gift of grace through faith. But what he's kind of saying here is, yes, you're saved, but following me may cost you everything. And we see that in the lives of who? The apostles, right? Salvation is a gift from God. Our forgiveness, our reconciliation with him. But following Jesus sometimes can cost you. It's cost a lot of people, right? So he's saying that you just, he's saying, before you decide to follow me, he says you just need to know that it may cost you. Count the cost of being my disciple. So listen to that as I close and read the rest of the chapter, verses 28 through 35. 28 through 35. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it, right? Enough money to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe will begin to ridicule him. Miscalculation, right? And they will be saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, this is interesting, military, military example. Or what king, when he has set out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000 men. That sounds like it's going to hurt, right? He says, or else... Whether the other is still, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. You know, if you don't wipe us out, we'll, we'll give you this much. So then, none of you can be my disciple. Here he is. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions. Hyperbole. Hyperbole. What he's saying is everything you have, including you, needs to belong to me. I need to be Lord of everything. Your money, your house. You know, I think, man, I've got this really cool house. Oh, it's Jesus' house. And it's paid for, by the way. It's Jesus' house. Everything we have is his. Therefore, he said, this is interesting, salt is good. You know, you can use salt for, for preserving things. It has healing properties. It makes my scrambled eggs taste great, right? It's seasoned salt's a good thing. And, and we're, he calls us the salt of the earth, right? So here he says, but if the salt has become tasteless, in other words, useless, with what shall it be reseasoned? How can you make it salty again? It is useless, it is useless either for the soil or for manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We are to be salty and committed. What a provocative way to wrap up that teaching. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What he's saying is if you can understand what I just said to you in all of these parables, take heed. Take heed of it. Take hold of it. Take it in. Think about what it means and digest it. Count the cost of what it could mean for you. Consider the cost before you decide to follow me but you need to follow me, right? He's saying because it's not just something that you're going to be doing on Sunday. It's not a side gig. 
It's everything you are. It's everything you are. Total commitment. 100%. It's not a sidekick. To use a poker term, my son Josh will love this, you need to be all in. You need to be all in. Either you're all in or you're not in at all. That's what these parables teach. Either he's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Either Jesus is first in your life or he's not. And if he's not, it's got to be something else. Second, third, fourth. Whoever has ears to hear, let him and let her hear. Hear the words of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, these are powerful words, powerful teachings, powerful hyperbole. It all points to being yours, belonging to you, and keeping you first in our lives, to seeking first your kingdom, and not being indifferent, distracted by things that sparkle, all the things of materialism and the stuff that is around us, remind us to keep you first. And that all we have is yours, even our complete body and soul and being. All our possessions are yours. Lord, help us to remember to keep you central in our lives. The center of all things. We pray in your name, Jesus. And all God's people can say,